all you online teaching geniuses, welcome to the podcast. What can I say about everything that's going on right now here in the United States and in so many places around the world? The global pandemic that is COVID-19 is raging right now, and so many of us have been quarantined for weeks, and we just don't know how much longer this will go on. By the time you hear this, which as I record right now is the beginning of April 2020, you might know more about what your school year is going to look like, whether you are out for the rest of the year or if there's a possibility that you still might return. We are actually going on spring break in a couple of days, and this was when I was supposed to go to Thailand to teach first steps, so I'm sad about that, but thankful to be safe at home. And because of everything that's going on, you'd think that in this episode's Keeping It Real segment, I would want to talk about online teaching or distance learning or virtual school or whatever you're calling it. But I don't want to talk about that right now, at least not directly. The last episode of this season will be all about life as an online teacher. But for right now, I want to talk about what I miss about real world teaching, because I bet you miss some of the same things too. And if I'm honest, there are some things I don't miss as much. Last week, when I saw all of my classes for the first time for live instruction, and I heard the kids' voices, I realized how much joy it brings even this cold heart to be around them and their crazy energy. All that earnestness, the silliness, the inquisitiveness, all of it is just such a wonderful and unique thing to experience in person. Uh, I'm thankful for the internet so we can approximate that, but nothing beats a kid excitedly running up to me, bursting with energy with a story or anecdote to share about their weekend or a loose tooth or their aunt's three cats. Kids crack me up in the best ways possible and I miss being with them every day and I feel that loss, and I know that they do as well. I'm really looking forward to seeing them again to experience it. Though, I'll probably be ready to go home the first day back about an hour after I get to work. (laughs) But it's nice to think about going to school in such positive ways, so I'll capitalize on it while I have it. I hope that no matter what you are having to do currently, you are trying to find that silver lining, because we all need a little happy news. In today's interview for the podcast, I am talking to Emily Morick once again. Emily, if you remember, is one of our dual-endorsed teacher trainers at FAME and the president-elect of the organization. She is such a positive force and a mover and shaker in Indiana music education. We are lucky to have her at FAME, and I am blessed to call her my friend. Emily and I recorded this last May at the Heimbach Hoedown that takes place every Memorial Day weekend in Blue Island, Chicago, and it was my pleasure to chat with her about why she thinks Conversational Solfege is such a fantastic program for the general music classroom. So let's hear what she has to say. All right, everyone, welcome to the podcast. I am really happy to be here with my friend and famed teacher trainer, Emily Marek. Um we are going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, but one that can be fraught with confusion for some people, conversational solfege. Uh, but before we do, could you just remind us again, because we've heard you in uh, an earlier episode, of the grade levels that you have taught 
and are currently teaching. Sure, pleasure to be here. Um, I teach uh, grades kindergarten through fourth at two different elementary schools in Northwest Indiana. And I'm at one school for four days a week and the other school for one day a week. And uh, that's my world. Mm. And what have you, have you always been at this position or were you in another position before this one? Years ago, my gosh, 20 years ago, I taught eighth grade general music at a junior high school. Oh, okay. Is that all you did? That is it, full time. Eighth grade oh my general word. music. And of course it was the kids that weren't in band or choir. And, and they were really want to be there. Right. And they rotated with current events. Oh. So me strange. and current events. Yeah. So <laughs> when I got this elementary job, then my world opened oh, my up word. and the birds were singing. <laughs> so you've been in this same position. Tw- going on twenty one years. That's the same as me. We probably started I started in my current school. Fleetwood, uh, 1999, 2000. Okay, 98. Look at that. Perfect. Aw. All right, so uh, I don't know if you remember, but before you started using conversational solfege, um, as, I mean, this is a very, like, I'm really simplifying it but for note reading what kinds of things were you doing to help your kids do that before conversational solfege sure basically the things i picked up from my cooperating teacher and student teaching and there was a lot of in first grade you know pot pot flower pot and we were doing (laughs) well i've not heard that i hear a lot of candy ones that's like my go-to or fruit Sure, sure. I don't know where flower pot came from, but my cooperating teacher preferred that. So, oh, interesting. You know, sometimes you just do plum, plum, apple, apple, plum. Right. (laughs) So, lots of two syllable, one syllable words with icons. Doing a lot of that. Um, Doing so and me on cardboard staffs with little bingo chips Uh, that they could move up and down. What, like two line staff, or what are they? I did a five-line staff back then. You were progressive back then. (laughs) Yeah, this was before whiteboards and marker boards were a thing. So, you know, cardboard. (laughs) Were you on a stone with a chisel, like, doing a staff? (laughs) It sure feels that way. When I look back on it, it's like, how archaic I have, like, the chalkboard ones. Um, They were so heavy. But I thought they were great, you know, back then. Mm-hmm. But yeah. now, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so you were doing that kind of thing. Sure, and really kind of following the, the sequence of share the music, okay. the textbook. Oh, I'm familiar with it. I yeah. might actually still have the very same series of share the music that was there when I arrived 20 years ago. Understood. You yeah. still it see those covers. not been updated, folks, because we believe in saving money. Absolutely. So anyway, when the book rolled around to talking about so and me or so me la or so me do or whatever it might be, that's where I was in okay. terms of notation, and rhythm and um, pitch and all the good stuff. Um, third grade, I think we ventured into so la me re do and fourth grade recorders, eventually recorder karate. So that that was kind of my my literacy world at the time. Sure, sure. It sounds maybe more full than other people's so that's not too bad i guess if you're gonna not do conversational soulfish uh because you didn't know about it so once you heard about conversational soulfish you want to talk a little bit about that and what made you decide like now i'm going to jump to this absolutely so when i first took first steps within a day or so dr fire robin had mentioned well and there's conversational soulfish and i said what there's more. I can continue in this. I think I probably signed up for the course that right, day right. for the next year <laughs> just so I could come back. So here I was back at Silver Lake and I took Lily's night class too and made it a bundle deal. 
And which and people it, can still do. Yes, they can. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. You can yep. get the fire robin experience yes. at Silver Lake in a different way. You get to take classes with Lily and John. Yeah, it's a really cool program. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. Not to mention the nun hammers, but we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Excuse me. <laughs> so uh, here we are uh, in first steps and, and John was giving me permission to not only ditch what I'd been doing with the littlest kids, but then giving me an opening to an, uh, something to do uh, with third and fourth grade. I didn't have fifth grade at the time. We didn't have them anymore. Right. So I thought, my goodness, okay, I've got a path. I'm going to do this. Excellent. All right. So once you decided um, you're going to do conversational soulfish or you were very interested in it, from that point, I know for different people, there are some brave souls, and I mean it, I'm not even making fun, who kind of go right into it, which I think is amazing. For me, it took a few years. Uh, because I was nervous and I was busy and I was just kind of like, I'm not exactly sure how to do this. And so it took a while before I actually said, okay, I'm doing this. So do you remember anything about the, when you first started rolling it out? Sure. When, when I got back to school that, that fall, I thought, okay, I want to do this. I, I think it's wonderful. So how am I going to start? Well, I started by rolling out unit one to everybody who was right. above the tuneful, beatful, artful threshold. So for me, that was... Um, third and fourth grade at the time, but now since then I backed it up to second semester of second grade. So I just ran unit one with everybody. Right, which is a real, it's something that we, or many of the teacher trainers, I think, uh, encourage people to do because it just makes your life more simple. Uh, so that's what I did too. Absolutely. And, uh, and also running the content with that many repetitions was so valuable for me because I got really messy and sticky with it. I really felt like I was elbow deep and then I was learning right away what was working, what wasn't working. Right, I right. need to do this better. I need to make that a goal for next year. And I just, it start, started to all fall into place there. Meaning I was looking ahead and how I was going to get there. Yeah. And it's nice because if you don't have to worry about in the beginning, like, oh gosh, is this okay? Like unit three is like this and unit like for me still after all these years i still get min um, i'll mix up unit two and three in my mind for some reason because of the number three i think i'll think oh where when does a quarter note eighth note come in i'm like oh unit two no unit three so i think when you <laughs> yes. take any extra layer of possible confusion out when you're starting something uh so anyway but maybe we're a little bit ahead of ourselves because i i wanted to uh, ask you the thing I'm asking everybody, and I think I asked you this about first steps, which is if you had to do that, you know, kind of famous, infamous elevator pitch, you know, you're with, you, maybe, you, maybe you do a presentation at a conference and somebody, this happens to me all the time, it's like, oh, Solfege. So they sign up for the thing and I don't know what they're expecting it to be, but it's not what they expect it to be. So if somebody said to you, I don't get it, you know, what is conversational Solfege? Uh, what things do you feel like are absolutely necessary to include uh, in that description? Sure. So I, I, I always start with uh, conversational soulfish is a 12-step program. Yes, for and kids. That's yes. my favorite. <laughs> and Dr. Fire Robin says it that way. And I still giggle inside because uh, it makes it sound somehow like it's a remedy to an illness. Right. But, but it kind of is. <laughs> yeah, in a way. It that's is. Exactly it's like what this it is, is the jumping off point for literacy. So let's yes. start here. We're right. going to give you a formula to do it. Yeah. You know, medicinal formula. <laughs> But more seriously, um, I always say that it's a music literacy curriculum okay. that uh, develops the ear before the eye. And sometimes you get a little gasp right, right there. Right, right, right. Yes, but the ear. But 
Okay, so conversational solfege builds a foundation of music literacy where students learn the function of the beat and the function of pitch. And they're doing this while they're playing games and learning joyful songs and they're dancing and they're doing all these things along the way. And it also it inherently teaches music literacy conversationally, hence the name. <laughs> right. And the way we acquire language, which mm. I just love. And when John was talking about that in his courses, just describing how infant and toddlers, they... they they acquire language because, of course, they hear rich language around them all the time. Yeah, surrounded by it. And then they start babbling and trying out the sounds for themselves. And then they start to speak words. And then it's sentences. And then it's complete thoughts. And then it's conversations. And, oh, here. Here's an alphabet. This is how we can see language. Right. And all those things you've been hearing, you know, and then saying are represented here. And you have all this, you bring all this meaning uh, to it, experiential meaning. And I just love the analogy because it was perfect. It was seamless to me. And I thought that is how we acquire music. Mm -hmm. It is. It's the same wiring systems. Okay. So why not treat it the same? Yeah. All right. So so your elevator pitch would be it's a way to help kids uh, become notationally literate that starts with an ear base. Absolutely. Um, in the same way as a conversational language. Um, is there anything else you might include uh, in that description, or do you, or not that, it's not really a description, but, you know, in why should I use it? How is it different than something else? Well, I also like to point out that um, <clears throat> conversational solfege uses rich literature mm. to teach concepts, yes. rather than just contrived melodies that you find sometimes in textbooks. These, the songs that we use are, they're just, they're culturally significant. They've been brought here by ancestors. They're, they're of diverse, different cultures. And the, the, sometimes the melodies you see in textbooks, they're composed for a specific purpose. Right, right. It's not a contrived bunch of repertoire. Exactly. Um, a donut, if yes, you will. exactly. And, and donuts, donuts are okay. That's okay, once in a while. Yes. But we can't have a steady diet on them. Right. There, there's no so way. you're offering this ear before I um, approach that uses, you know, fantastic repertoire. Also, classical music is a part of that repertoire. Smaller, but still there. Um, and then the 12 steps, which is kind of nice to have this kind of sequential uh, way of rolling out things. And now I'm just talking about, you know, what I would include in my elevator pitch when I talk to people. Yes, and I do like to point out that it's a, a formula, if you will. It's, it's sure. a, a scaffold, and I'm a formulaic person, so that really <laughs> speaks to me. I like yeah. to know where I am in a sequence, and I love to know that a sequence is built on the absolute best research, and mm. it, it's proven. Yes. And that's what this is. It works. Yeah. This stuff works. Yeah. And if you, let me just say, like, there's something I say in my training courses, because I think sometimes people, or maybe I'm just talking about me, um, I say, in conversational solfege, you have three books. Each book is a level. So you know the kind of rhetoric we're using. In each book, there are units. A unit contains a musical idea. For example, it could be mi, re, do, or the first one, do and due day, so quarter and two eighth notes. And you, in each unit, you are going through 12 steps. And you start basically, um, like John would put it the nice way, emerging. I would call it, you don't know anything. <laughs> yes. You know nothing. Um, to mastery by the 12th step. And so for those of you out there who are listening, and I know that was me. Boy, do I wish this podcast was there. You know, it was, I was like, well, what is, it? I don't understand. Like, how does it work? It is these 12 steps. You go through these 12 steps in that unit. You use repertoire as 
you know, you mentioned, Emily, is fantastic repertoire. You're moving through it. You're interacting. You're um, hearing it. The kids are chanting or singing it. Then they move to decoding it all by ear first. And then they begin to see it, you know, once they've mastered it. And then they begin to write it. And those steps, those 12 steps, are reflected in those things, like basically four broad categories. Getting ready to do it. The next one is hearing it, being immersed in it, and performing whatever you've, you know, the songs or the chants. Then comes reading, then comes writing. And that's kind of the practical part of what are these 12 steps. Once you've done the 12 steps in unit one, then what do you do? Go to unit two. And then you start the whole thing again. Because I think I've had some people who have said, oh, is it like 12 steps and then you're done book one? And then 12 steps and then you start. And I said, no, it's every unit is 12 steps and then you start again. But really what's happening is as you go through it, um, the kids are learning an important process as well as learning about those musical concepts. So do you have anything that you want to say to that since I'm just talking and talking? Sorry. <laughs> well, the 12 steps, <clears throat> thankfully, allow a, a spot to create. Yes. And then that is just the world to me because to, to create, that's the, the highest form of our art. Yeah. So you get to do it, step five, in the ear steps. Mm -hmm. So then orally, kids can create their patterns. Uh, it's, it's great activity building you can assess those things, and you should assess step five before mm -hmm. you go on to the I part. But then when they're seeing and writing, they can write down their own original notation and their own their own uh, melody, or if you're in a rhythm unit, their right. own rhythm. And that is just a tangible thing you can grab onto. Yeah. You know, it's, it's great. They can go on the bulletin board. You definitely assess those in terms of uh, grading. Right. There you go. And you know you've got a nice, neat package bundle. They've gone through their own process to create their own thing. I love that. Yeah. And it's, as you said, you know, and as Ed Gordon said, you know, improvisation is the highest form of kind of musical thinking. And it's nice that it's built into these 12 steps so that if you think about it in unit one, if at step five, uh, I am creating by either singing or chanting an original something. Uh, and then again, in step 12, not only am I doing it by performing it, I'm also now writing it down. You know, you have this built in uh, critical thinking for music. Um, every time you do a unit, it's not, okay, we need to get through five units. And then in the fifth unit, you're going to do this. So that's another thing uh, I really appreciate about the program. And how many times do elementary music teachers say to themselves, oh my gosh, I need to do a composition unit because I don't have any right. composition right. grades. Right, right. Well, you don't need to do a whole unit because it's just part of the, the structure of every unit of conversational self -edge. it's built in yeah so you're gonna be that, improvising you're honoring that standard you're honoring the process yeah you're good at standards can you tell everybody why we're gonna have a podcast later about this oh sure uh, uh andy heimlich and myself and brent galt and a host of others uh we we helped to revise indiana's academic standards in music where we use the nafme standards as a jumping off point but then we reordered them resequenced them and um tidied them up for what we believe to be um our use if you will yes more uh realistic and practical and for... methodology friendly yes yes you. indeed well Maybe you can come to New Jersey and do that for us as well. <laughs> Be glad to help. Yes. And um, hopefully when that podcast 
airs where we're talking to you and Andy and Brent, uh, people will hear that. And I'm, I'm really hoping that they'll be encouraged to assert themselves and try to get involved in that process in their state because it would, what a huge thing it would be to not have stinky, terrible standards. And that's a very professional way of putting it. (laughs) So true. But anyway, as you go through the 12 steps of CS, you are just kind of naturally hitting those standards, which to be honest, I don't always care about uh, the standards so much, but if you can say to admin, hey, look at me, you know, if you can have a great methodology and you can also satisfy the requirements of your state and district and whatever, fantastic. Absolutely. I, in, inherently, there's sight reading in there, step eight. Mm-hmm. There are many chances for authentic assessment. My goodness, that's very valuable too in the time of uh, rise evaluations or whatever systems you're using in your state. Um, chances to compose and create musically. These are all wonderful things that would help us uh, fulfill the standards and do it with integrity. Yeah, I mean, doing it with what Dr. Fireabin, I think, often calls a research-based program that is practitioner-proven, which is, to me, the best of both worlds. I think we hear a lot about programs that people love that uh, teachers kind of gush on and on about, but when you look closely at them, either they're not following best practices or they're not developmentally appropriate or perhaps they're too electronically based, um, or you have maybe one or two things that are very research focused, but that uh, you may see practitioners struggle to carry out uh, in the classroom, which is why I love both First Steps in Music and Conversational Soulfish, because you have this thing that's undergirded by research and um, what we know is best for development and pedagogy and tons of teachers who are like, Oh my gosh, you know, it's, it just works. And the things I'm seeing are fantastic. I don't know. We probably have covered this, but if you had to kind of say, what is the essence of conversational soulfish that makes you, you know, so excited to talk, to teach people about it, to get them to use it in their programs and for you to use it. Well, I just love being able to teach by ear. That, Mm. that was huge for me because I, I think as a, young teacher, I always wanted to teach that way, but felt like somehow it wasn't allowed. Right. And I felt like when I did ORF lessons that I uh, picked up at conferences and things, and I brought them back, we were playing by ear. Everything was being learned by ear. Mm. But yet I still felt this, um, oh gosh, requirement to put things on notation so that they would have to read them. And it yeah. just felt so fake and so artificial. But then you have a couple piano kids in your class who can right, read right, the right. notation. You're like, well, am I ignoring them mm-hmm. or am I not? Right. <laughs> and so John just gave me permission to let that go. Yeah, which is really nice. Amazing. And and I, so many of the listeners out there, I'm sure, had a piano lesson at age six with Sister Cordula, <laughs> like I did. <laughs> and if you don't know the Sister Cordula story, story it's one John tells in his courses about... You know, this is a middle C. Push this button. And when you see it on the page, you're going to push this button. So right. how many of those are on the page and push this push button that many times? Right, right. And I oversimplify. He tells the story <laughs> way better. But that's my generation. I think that's how we all learn piano. Sure. Yeah. And I think our teachers were just doing the best they could. Absolutely. And that, at the time, was the research. It was yeah. the prevailing thought. Yeah. It's what It was being taught to every pre-service teacher. I, I mean... I generalize, but at most institutions, sure. and and we, our generation too, twenty years ago, we were being taught that same way. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So then to be able to let that go 
was just mm. so huge for me. It just, mm. again, opened up the space and the time and I was able to just be free and, and really uh, enjoy that level of freedom. Right, and, the, and a process that makes sense to you as a musician when you kind of pull back and think about it. John and I were actually just um, having this big talk about this, how I was saying I think that so many of us, it's like being a parent. Uh, you operate out of a lot of guilt a lot of times, some people more than others. You know, you think you're doing okay on something and then somebody says something and that kind of is always in your head, like, should I be doing this? But boy, And then I said, I think so many teachers also do that. You know, you see other people, other programs doing, you know, this and you're, and you've been taught that way. So I think it takes some time, but when we can remind ourselves we are the experts these are our students our children and what i'm doing is what's best for them you have to find something that feels like the best because as you know zoltan kodai said only the best will do for children so i agree with you i mean for me that's what i would say this is what i consider to be the best there are other options um, and some of them are good and some of them are not good to be honest in my opinion um, but this one seems like the best and the research is confirming that um, and practice is confirming that and we have the luxury of you know teaching many people who come back and tell us you know their successes so all right well now that we talked about that uh when we think about those 12 steps and again we have covered this a little bit what to you is the most important part of the 12 steps the thing that um, a person who is new to conversational solfege needs to keep in mind. So, cause it can get overwhelming to think, oh my gosh, I got to do this step one, step two. Am I doing this right? Should I do two steps in one lesson or four steps in one lesson? But if you could just say, give yourself a break, step back. Here's what you just want to always be thinking about. What might you say? Absolutely. So you're going to spend the large bulk of your time in steps two through five. Yes. You're going to spend so much time there. You're going to think to yourself, Am I spending too much time there? <laughs> right. And it's almost impossible to spend too much right. time there. And you want to talk a little bit about what steps two through five are for the people who are Absolutely. listening. So uh, step two is where students would echo the given patterns that would be in, in the unit. Mm -hmm. uh, remember, the unit has to do with one central rhythmic concept. So those patterns, there's eight patterns, because John said that's how many fit on a page. Mm -hmm. So the A patterns are the ones that they will just echo by rote. Yeah, just so like the teacher imagine. says them or sings them. The person just echoes. The kid just echoes. Absolutely. So you have to start there. Got to give them the content. This is what we're dealing with. Step three would be, could they decode those patterns or those tones off of an instrument, off of a neutral syllable, uh, something to that effect, or from uh, text? So sure. if you had a poem like, Miss White had a fright, could they echo back or could they decode back, do, 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 day, do? Mm -hmm. Then no, step four is, can you take a song or rhyme they've never heard of and decode off of that? Or the B patterns, which are so nicely put into the right. book. That you haven't used yet. Right. Those are specially saved for decoding unfamiliar things. And so those steps two, three, four, and then step five would be the create. Could they make an original four beat pattern using quarter and um, eighth notes or whatever unit you're in? So could they make an original pattern 
and speak it, sing it, whatever it might be. And that's the accessible, that's the hard stop, right? There, right, right. The accessible right. moment. So you're going to spend a lot of time, two, three, four, so that you can get to create, to right. have that authentic assessment. And this is completely normal. The kids are better for it, and they will do much better in the eye steps later on when they're looking and writing. Um, if your kids struggle with the ear steps, you have to get more games, have them in your back pocket, but, but don't feel the need to beat them over the head with it. Right. I have a lot of student teachers who are like, they're not decoding anything right today. It's okay. Yeah, step you know away. <laughs> you step back one step. Yep. Yep, have your post-it note ready with whatever uh, previous step you had ready last week. Maybe do it again. It's okay. And let them come to the understanding on their own. I know we're, we're ensemble conductors, and when we listen to the decoding in the room, we want it all to be perfect. <laughs> yes. And you are going to have a normal distribution of kids. Right. You're going to have the kids who nail it the first time and always get it, and they always look at everybody else like they're dummies. <laughs> and then you always have the ones at the bottom who might never participate fully. And right. Well, anyway, they're just having a bad day, and then you've got everybody in the middle. It's okay. Yeah. The middle is really what we're going for. Yeah. And That's it's 68% of your class. That's a big chunk. Even if you have the kids who, who are aren't your top participators or maybe just are having rough times, they're still hearing the patterns. They're still feeling the beat. Maybe they're just keeping the beat, but they're, they're still with you. Right, right. But again, we have to be the guide on the side. We can't beat them over the head with it. Right. So again, chances are next week, they'll be a little closer. All right. And so go ahead. Oh, and then every class might literally be in a different spot. That's tough as a teacher when sure. you're in two schools. And you're teaching and you're, multiple sections right so john just suggests making a little notation as they walk out the door this is where we left off it's all good and i do have classes that are a couple steps apart sometimes and that is also fine yeah and i'm glad you bring that up i i would say two of the top questions i get are you know what do you do when you're teaching multiple sections of the same grade level and they're very different and the second question is what do you do with high turnover rates of students and let me just tell you, my answer to both is kind of the same and pretty frustrating, but also freeing. I just do what I can do. I, I do what I can do because I operate pragmatically. And so I have in our school, I don't, I think we have an above average rate of students moving in and out of our school. A little bit above average, not terrible. I know some people have just constant, there's nothing we can do about that. Correct. The only thing that I could do about that is stay after school and remediate with each student. And that's just not going to happen because I am a bad person. So I am not (laughs) going to do that. Well, there aren't enough hours in a day. So, I mean, it's kind of like when people ask me that, I kind of say, well, that's not a question that's specific to Fire Oven. That's everybody. Mm-hmm. What do you do that's if life. you're using traditional Kodai? What do you do if you're using ORF? And you have a kid who comes in. You do what you can do, but you're still dealing with the bulk of your class and moving them forward. I wish I could get every learner um, and make sure that each, like 100% of my kids are moving forward. But... Unless you can prove it to me otherwise, it's just not doable for well, me. I have the same situation because in my second school, I only have a third of the kids in the school uh, on any yeah. given day or any given year or whatever you want to say. So I'll have some kids in fourth grade that I've never seen before in my life <laughs> right. and, I'm, and I'm running them through unit four. Yeah. But you know what? They, they do okay. They, they do all right. Yeah. They really do. And of course, I'm going to be a little bit more deliberate and sure. give a few more hints. You know, yeah, absolutely. Hints here absolutely. There. You know, it's, it's differentiation. It's good teaching. As yeah. Lily would say, yeah. it's just good teaching. Yeah. And I want to say i'm i'm not and you're not saying this but i'm not saying you know i ignore them and treat everybody um i do what i can do uh if i can 
cut them a little slack if I can say okay this time I just want you to listen when everybody else gets a chance to create today you're just going to listen and I found that kids pick it up pretty quickly um so there's that and then what was the other one the um oh classes because you brought that up so like you know Heller's class is seems to be like less than a half ahead of Macaw's class and it's the same concept I do what I can do. Sometimes I'll hold back the other classes just a little bit if Mm -hmm. the gap is very big. So maybe the next time we have music, these three classes are going to do more doing things or repeating some of the conversational soul fetch while I really try to up this other class. But then what I always remind myself of is, at least in my school, next year, they're all tossed up into the air and they land in different classes. So it would be one thing if kind of, you know, Mrs. Heller's class started in kindergarten and then they went to first grade and then they went to second grade. But in our school, it's every year you're in a different mix. So Absolutely. I think just for people who kind of tend to ask that question, like, well, what do you do about this? I'm, I always say, well, what do you do about it now? That's this, probably similar to what I do. And there are several games that the kids just love and they play them as standalone games. Yeah. Like four corners. Right. That game, they just love it. They don't care what unit we're on or what we're doing. Right. And, and the nice thing is you can change the content of that game at any moment. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be see a pin, pick it up one day or whatever. And and they think it's just so fun. Right. So if, you got a, if you've got a class to get extra game time every week, yeah. not a problem. Yeah, that's what I always think. <laughs> I'm always kind of like, when I get to do that, it's like bonus you know it's really nice and when by the way for anybody who's listening and doesn't know when when emily is talking about these games we're talking about something called techniques uh in the book which are ways of really for any of the steps but it seems like at some steps at least for me i'm using more techniques than others usually step five which is our create at the uh kind of oral oral level no reading no writing um do you have anything you want to say about techniques or were you just oh sure (laughs) always So yeah, my favorite technique for step five is to hold up the four fingers and say, I'm gonna say a pattern and then you think of something different and we do it as a large group. We do many of them, we get messy and sticky with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm listening for, do we all start together and do we all end together and can I feel the beat in the room? Hmm. And if not, I'll break it down maybe into smaller groups. Oh, see how everyone, even though they were saying different patterns, they spoke at the same time, they were on the beat. Yes. You know, and we keep track of the beats right there. Then, when you, you've had so many chances to practice, when you do go around the room real quick and get everybody's pattern, you're, they're, they're more likely to have success. They've tried all these patterns out. They've right. heard people's patterns. So step five, um, create sounds daunting, but yet... No, it's pretty simple. Yeah, a couple weeks, a couple little activities slash games. You just go to the front of the book. There's a, a spot where it has all the techniques slash mm-hmm. games. They're right. listed. And, and I use that uh, that section for my, I call it a nudge plan, because I'm right. going to nudge this class in this direction or <laughs> right, right. whatever it might be. So backing up a step, going to a previous step, whatever, the differentiation, whatever format Right, you takes. could pull out, you could say, well, we tried this technique, but maybe I'll try a new one because they didn't seem to get it that first time. So let's play exactly. a different game. And you're going to change the games a little bit based on the <laughs> yeah, situation yeah, you're in. And as a matter of fact, Dr. Firebin has said he hopes teachers will do that. They'll take the games and make them their own. Yeah, I think for their own everybody situation. does that once they start. To, but it's nice right. to kind of get that technique section. I even know it's pages 19 through 58 in my book. Um, I even have them laminated in a little clip that I, I keep out with my patterns. That. Well, it's it's what's funny is I realized that was a key for me. And I like the way Heimlich says, or Andy Heimlich says, um, what is it? if it's like the techniques are the fuel that keeps the car running or something like that in conversational soul fish. So 
again, if a person is listening out there and you're, you're hardly familiar with it at all, it can sound dry to say, we're going through these 12 steps. So now you're going to hear these things. Then you're going to echo them. Then you're going to decode them. Then you're going to decode unfamiliar ones. Then I'm going to ask you to create one. And I say, like, these techniques are the way to breathe fun into the process. So uh, keep that in mind. And so I like what you were saying, you know, to you, the kind of essence of the program, the most important steps of the program, excuse me, are the, uh, the what we call the conversational soulfish steps, not to be confused with the name of the entire program, which is conversational soulfish. <laughs> uh, that means, as you said, steps two to five, no visuals at all Correct. are happening. This is an ear and mouth time. They are hearing things and then singing or chanting things back. Um, when you think about all the stuff that we've talked about and, and you think about it compared to first steps in music, um, one thing I like to say is, you know, you need to get trained. You know, it would be great to get trained in first steps and you need to get that, but I'm going to be honest and say, you know, you absolutely need to get trained in conversational solfege. If you really want um, your teaching to become effortless for you, uh, it won't be effortless in the beginning, but when you sit with a master teacher uh, teaching you how to do these things, it's going to become so clear. And to be honest, if you do it more than once, it's great. So uh, why do you think someone should get the training for uh, conversational selfish? What, what value exists in taking the time and the money uh, to do this for a teacher who is stretched on both things? Well, I think what you, what you said, you alluded to, it, it breathes life into it, mm -hmm. right? 12 steps sounds kind of dry, but even though uh, conversational solfege is formulaic in its mm -hmm. approach, like first steps, it's a formula, right. it's a plug-in, right. exactly, which I just adore, mm -hmm. uh, you have to hear and see how it's done. Yeah. You really do. You have to go through being a student in the class, which is how we... Uh, we, when we train the classes, you are the students right. and the teacher trainer is the teacher. So you get to feel and see how it is to be in seats. The manual is great, of course, but knowing the function of those steps and how they work and what to do if they don't work is uh, critical yes. to the success. Because that's going to happen in any approach. Exactly. You're going to get a drum out one day and do your rainforest messages or whatever it might be, and you're going to tap that drum and no one's going to get it. And you're thinking, <laughs> oh my goodness, what did I do wrong? Right. So then you look at your post-it note, you go back, you grab some different games and activities. Right. So you have to know how to, how to do that and how that process works. And the other unintended bonus of sitting through a, a CS class is not just you know absorbing it like a sponge, but it, it, it really helps our own musicianship, I think really yes. laser beam focus on what happens between beats and then the relationship between the pitches. I know we all took solfege in college and some <laughs> of us have taken way more <laughs> <laughs> some of us have spent way more time in it than just that. Right, right. But we have to sometimes undo some of our former sister cordula yep, yep. ourselves. And we have to remind ourselves how how, when and why things work. Right. And hearing it from a master teacher, uh and from Dr. Farabend, who is the master of, of master teachers, I should say. Uh, I think he, you know, when John talks sometimes, it's so funny. I've heard the same thing so many times. There is not, I don't think there's been one time yet where I've kind of like rolled my eyes and said, oh, I've heard this, you know. Every time I'm amazed at how 
it triggers something different in my brain. Like, oh, you know, even last year, I still joke, you know, something happened. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been doing this wrong. Like I thought this. Uh, so for sure, the baseline training the first time is crucial. And I get it. Some people don't want to do it or they don't have the time. But if it's at all possible, you know, we encourage you. I would encourage you to reach out to somebody like Emily. Um, bring her uh, to your district, to your area uh, for a training session. Uh, I've had lots of people who have uh, from scratch, you know, brought up a program and said, I want to bring out this teacher trainer, you know, talk to the, and then you just contact the teacher trainer and say, Emily, I want to get you out here. What do I need to do? And Emily will help you through that process. Like, okay, we need this many students. Can you find a space? It's really not that difficult, which is cool. You can be in control because there's so many people who are like, well, how come we don't have any trainings here, you know, in my area? And sometimes I say, well, we don't know uh, where we can't just kind of suddenly say, well, I'm going to go to Wyoming. You know, we need somebody in Wyoming to say, boy, I think there are at least 10 teachers here, you know, who could do this. So I don't intend for this to be an advertisement. Uh, the truth is, I believe in the power of this training uh, very much. And so I would encourage you uh, to reach out to Emily to ask her to come out or to another teacher trainer, but really Emily, let's just say, cause she's here. <laughs> um, and so, okay. So obviously you think, is it very different than first steps training, this training? In some ways it is. I think just no, I because agree. the steps are so different, there's a, a phase shift, a, a shift you have to go through in your own mind. Um, and then also a big common misconception is that conversational solfege is your entire class yes, period. Yes, I'm glad you said oh that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that and might be the big one. It, it, it is. And I could, I could see how somebody would think that. Well, they we have to share the music. Right. You know, yeah, you have mm-hmm. to share the music experience. Then. Right. And first steps is your whole class period. Right. So I get that. So. But really, eight to ten minutes, that's it. Yeah. And and this is valuable, too. If your middle school directors also teach some of the elementary grades, but then are the choral directors or if they're instrumental directors, they can do conversational solfege, too. Talk about eight minutes as a warm-up at the beginning of class, and they can go on and have their regular rehearsals and do all the things that they're doing. Right, right. And I just love the idea that you could get deep in, in literacy, and, and they could pick up where you left off in your room and then have a singing band. That mm. That's just the goal to which we all aspire. Sure. And, of course, choirs that can sight-read and do all yeah. those wonderful things. And just eight minutes a day, eight to ten at the most. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I know several schools have those big, giant block schedules. They've got the, the Tuesday, they have a 90-minute rehearsal. <laughs> right. Good grief. Crazy. You know, throw in a folk dance, do your regular yeah. stuff, and do eight to ten minutes of literacy. Yeah. Good to a, go. It can fit in in so many places. And it is super flexible. First steps, you know, you, you go all the way until they're tuneful, beat, floorful, and you do the same types of things. But then CS can it has a little bit of, what do I want to say, flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. In, yeah. in the repertoire that you pick, uh, in how often you do it, yes. that's, a, that's really... You know, because that's another question that I asked, and of course, I get asked all the time, which is like, well, how many times do you do step one? How many times do you do step two? And I'll generally say, I'll give you a, I'll give you a generalized outline of that, but I'm telling you, it's totally dependent on what your students are showing you. And John always says, it depends. Yes. <laughs> that is <laughs> the his most answer. frustrating but true <laughs> answer of all the answers. So... Uh, 
thank you, Emily, for being willing to kind of talk about your perspective as a teacher trainer and really your perspective as a teacher, you know, who has, uh, you did this, you used conversational solfege before ever you became, you know, a teacher trainer. And I think this kind of thing is really valuable for people, especially with conversational solfege, because I think people are hesitant uh, because it requires more work. Uh, and I just want to say to people, it's worth the work. It's like a good relationship. It's work, but it's worthwhile. And John always says it's the process of seemingly effortless assimilation. Yes. It will eventually feel like that. Absolutely. You put in the work in the first couple years you're trying it, and right. it will, it'll just flow. Yeah. And please reach out because we can answer those questions, mm-hmm. the Fire Oven Fundamentals page. You yeah. have an answer within two minutes. Yes. Somebody's got an idea for you. Get the Fire Oven Fundamentals book, which That's has a right. lot of good answers for people. We wrote that. I mean... When I started writing that, one of the first things I was thinking of was the hundreds of questions I get about the programs. And it was kind of like, okay, so if I write this to somebody who has never heard of any of it, will this communicate to them kind of the basics of the approach? Yeah, kind of like a companion to the the manual itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is really nice. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. We have been talking about conversational soulfish a lot in the past four episodes. And I don't feel bad about it because I love this program. I earnestly hope that you have been encouraged if you use it already or inspired to learn more. And I hope you sign up to take a certification course. It is completely worth it. In our Ask Me Anything segment, we have a very good question from Curtis from Ohio who wrote, I recently listened to part two of John Feyerabend's non-negotiables on your podcast. John mentioned that he would recommend holding off on any rhythmic movement until third grade and that we should instead focus on beat on the body, rhythm in the voice until then. Does this include holding off rhythmic clapping or not? Would this include holding off from playing ostinatos on instruments? Perhaps ostinatos should be spoken instead? Does this mean all instruments should be for beat keeping until third grade? So this is kind of a short answer, but very clear, uh, because in answer to this, Dr. Feyerabend would say only beat until third grade. So whether students are clapping or playing on instruments, they're only focusing on beat. I've heard him say something about you're kind of developing this inner metronome in them. So a fire robin teacher would, before having students play rhythms in third grade and up, be more prone to only have them move to the beat until third grade, whether on the body, clapping, or on an instrument. And of course, don't forget that that beat should be between metronome marking 120 and 136. So like I said, short and sweet answer. If you want to read more about that, you can do so in the first steps in music with Orff Schul workbook from some of our greatest Feyerabend teachers available from GIA. I will include that link in the show notes. Thank you so much, Curtis, for your question. Don't forget to send any other questions you have for me to tunefulbeatfulartfulpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to the Feyerabend Association for Music Education who helps support this podcast. And speaking of fame, have you become a member yet? Visit firerobinmusic.org for more information and lots of resources. 
If you'd like to learn about Dr. Fireobin and his programs and his resources, visit giamusic.com slash fireobin and of course our Fireobin Fundamentals page on Facebook where we have a community of more than 10,500 teachers talking every day about what it means and what it's like to teach music. As always, my friends, thank you so very much for spending a few minutes here with me. I hope it was encouraging, thought-provoking, and helpful. Please tune in for our last episode of this season, and until then, keep doing all you can to create a more tuneful, beautiful, artful world. <music>